the, uh, the speakers for tonight and the program. Uh, JR is the Minister of Information for the Prisoners of Consciousness Committee. He's the founder and uh, producer of Block Report Radio. And he's been uh, organizing the uh, Gaza to the Ghetto speaking tour with M1, who uh, is the one half of Dead Prez and an activist in his own right. And it's really an honor to be here with somebody who's putting his action where his words are. And uh, I'm just really, really, really happy that you're doing this work. And it's good to have you guys here. So without further ado, I present JR and M1. Well, I just want to say, I want to definitely, on behalf of POCC Black Report Radio Show and the SF Baby newspaper, want to thank everybody for coming out and definitely thank Jean, the Brown Berets, and the committee to free Romaine Chip Fitzgerald. You know, our call in the POCC is free them all, so, you know, we would free our abolition of prisons and letting the people sort them out. Um, I've been knowing, well, first, you know, she said in one, but first I want to in, in, introduce the person who will be interviewing M1. It's somebody I've been knowing for at least a decade, somebody who um, was very key to my political development too. Somebody that the first uh, organization that I ever was a part of in the community um, was the organization that he helped to found. Um, somebody that you guys know a phenomenal artist, one that I also grew up off of before I was organizing them. That's Boots of the Cool and the Street Sweeper Social Club. Yeah. He'll be interviewing M1, who is also has a past as an organizer, a uh, freedom fighter in our community, organizer with the African People's Socialist Party. Um, in PNUM also, um, international now it's called the international um, the international people's democratic Uhuru movement. Um, somebody I've also known uh, for a while, you know, um, somebody I've learned a great deal from um, while he was behind the mic as well as in front of the mic where he was doing more stuff uh, with his hands and stuff that's not seen. Uh, by any movie camera recorded on any in any studio. So without further ado, I want to bring up Matulu Olubala, aka M1 Dare Prayers. Right. Again, thanks all thanks all of you for coming. Thanks to all of you for coming. <laughs> Thanks to all of you. Uh, anyway, uh, I've been knowing M1 for a long time. Uh, for a long time now, since 99, the first time I met him, you know, basically we were thrown together and I slept, slept on his floor. He fed me for a good week. We didn't, never knew each other before that, so he's a very warm person and, uh, We've kept the friendship up since then, and uh, a lot of what we talk about, I, I kind of have to, I, I kind of have to shape what this interview is because we talk all the time about concepts like the stuff we're going to be talking about tonight. So I want to make sure it doesn't just get off into some, you know, 
tangents that like we might normally do. Anyway, <laughs> so, so, yeah, so nobody gonna mind. Man. So anyway, uh, so you went on this uh, trip to Gaza with a contingent of folks. Yep. How did all that come about? Well, um, first of all, before we get to that, I hope y'all don't mind. I'd like to thank you for letting me be here. My name is M1 and one half of Dead Prayers, as was mentioned before. Um, Boots, uh, again, thanks for reminding me uh, that that happened. Now I remember you owe me something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no serious, um, serious tip. Uh, the Ghetto to Gaza, this particular tour, has been a f uh, phenomenal vehicle to uh, talk about my recent experiences in Gaza, uh, but moreover, um, you know, it has been a great way to learn from the people who, who I find often in the crowd know more about this situation than I do. Um, it help, it's helping me to become a better fighter, and uh, because I'm a better fighter, then I can use my artistry to, to be, to, to, to use my weapon even better. So that's, that's what's happening, I want to thank you, and um, this organization, uh, and uh, the Brown Berets and everybody for helping me be here. So first of all, for that. So, um, and then your question was, I'm got a short-term memory part. Well, uh, there was a contingent going to Gaza yeah. that you were invited to become a part of. Okay. Uh, Two-part question. One, how did that come about? And two, this was right after the bombings. Right. Um, and so I'm sure you had to think about certain things like personal safety, right. things like that, and, and tell us how all that played out. Well, I think um, everybody who knows Dead Press music knows that Dead Press has been surrounded uh, itself in revolutionary cultures, if, uh, if, you, if you know us, and uh, a lot of leadership from Boots as well that we took in, when we first came out with Let's Get Free. So as representatives of the African Liberation Movement, this front is and, and on, inside the U.S., um, we found ourselves having discussions about what it takes to get free in every community, um, in every point of view. So um, we would not only uh, find ourselves in solidarity with uh, indigenous people's struggles here uh, inside the borders um, and all kinds of struggles on every front, whether it be you know reparations to our, our health care, to police brutality, everything, every possible uh, you know problem that confronts our community, we, we fighting on this level. And so, and obviously living in New York City, um, the question of Palestine became one that, um, you know, was definitely in the scope of our international politics. Um, our movement, I think as a whole, has been trying to reorganize itself for, um, and, I, and it's constantly in a state of flux. I mean, this area knows it even more. I mean, California knows it, Santa Cruz knows it. Um, San Jose knows it, Oakland knows it. Um, you know, I, we, we've been in this area for a minute because of it, the history of resistance of, of the movement here, the, the, the strong lineage uh, and almost unbroken history of resistance that remains, which is probably the reason why a lot of you know what you know while you're in the room. Well, we would talk about these kind of things with the Palestinian community in New York and it would be, um, organizers from uh, this one particular organization called Existence is Resistance. And uh, we would uh, talk about action that we could do, but it would always end up in, in a lot of ways, just like it does, in concerts. And so I would be invited to do concerts that would be fundraisers uh, that would send resources back to Palestine, um, hopefully, you know, into the homes of people who have been most affected by the recent bombings. 
uh, and a lot of you know the history just as well as I do, and probably a lot better. So when you, when I'm talking about this kind of uh, the new kind of bombings that have been happening, we know that since 1948 there has been a huge conflict over this piece of land uh, in the, uh, the the so-called quote-unquote Middle East, and um, you know that in in uh, uh, so. When you talk about the Middle East, like I said, I also want to say that this, this, this particular thing was invented by Henry Kissinger. That the concept of the Middle East was invented by Henry Kissinger. There was no uh, Middle East before. So we have these, all these concerts, and uh, we would do concerts with people like Immortal Technique, and people like uh, the Air Likes, or uh, people like um, uh, Rebel Diaz. I want to throw these names out because they are important, I think, in our discussion, if you're going to talk about who's on the front line. So as we have these um, concerts to, to send resources back, afterwards one time I was, I was um, invited not only to, to, uh, to perform, but also to, to come, go to Palestine. And uh, it was during that trip that I got that invitation and, and uh, that I went to Palestine. So that's how it happened. Um, was, were, were there any particularly radical organizations that you went with? Who, who were some of those folks? And how were you received? Well, um, okay. This is how it happened. Um, Existence is Resistance is the organization that's connected to Palestine. Um, the sister named Nancy Lee Mansour and her sister, who is a rapper, her name is Shadia, and you should look up for this name, the sister Shadia Mansour. Um, it was this organization that invited me to be a part of a greater coalition of organizations that were going into Palestine. Um, the huge group all together is called Viva Palestina. And it is a, co a coalition of, I couldn't even tell you how many organizations, but it ended up being about 200 people that had been invited into Cairo to go on this trip. And some uh, of the organizations were like, for instance, there was an organization called the Preachers for Peace. Um, and there was an organization uh, of students, of college students. I mean, they, they were just, you know, when I talked to them about why they were there, they were just basically like, we just wanted to, to be a part of a great mission. You know, like, in, in some ways, I could tell not really too much informed about what it meant to go to Gaza, but that they wanted to be there. So I wanted to just, I, and then there, were, uh, there was an organization of Jewish rabbis who were there. And they were, I'm talking about the, Yamako wearing with, with locks, more Hasidic, uh, anti-Zionist Jewish people. So there's a, I just want to kind of tell you that the diversity of the people that was there was huge and um, or was wide. And, uh, and of course there, was a, there were black people like myself. And um, I, as, a, as a matter of fact, some people who I really um, united with and was really happy to see when, when I got over there was one, um, a New York City councilman named Charles Barron. He's a former Black Panther and uh, still a freedom fighter. Um, but he, he holds a city council seat and he's from Brooklyn, New York, which is the same place that I'm from. And it would be myself and Councilman Barron in the last like six or seven years, uh, he, he helped to defend my rights when the police beat me down in Brooklyn, me and like six of my comrades in Brooklyn. And this, of course, this is no coincidence, but. Uh, this just shows the relationship that I had with Councilman Barron. And so he too was on the trip. And last but not least, um, you know, as soon as I arrived, I found out that Cynthia McKinney was there. And I bumped into her in the lobby. And all of you who know about Cynthia McKinney, 
uh, who may have heard about her recent travels to Palestine, well, we, we were, uh, I was fortunate enough to be with her and this, in this group of 200 people as we went. And, um, you know, her, her, her uh, journey to get to, where, to get to that point was incredible. She had, uh, you know, through the uh, Free Gaza uh, Coalition, had gone by boat and been stopped and arrested by the Israeli or hit, uh, kidnapped. We, we have to re redefine the term. She was kidnapped by the Israeli Navy and uh, subsequently arrested, spent 10 days in jail. Then she was uh, freed by the Lebanese uh, government and ended up back on the convoy trying to get back into Gaza with this particular coalition. So uh, there was a lot of people there from different organizations and a lot of different kind of people just for many different reasons who had joined this convoy called Viva Palestina uh, that planned to, whose main mission was to go up into Gaza from Cairo, break the siege or uh, at least stop, lift the embargo for uh, however much time that people could go in there and, uh, and symbolically show that the people of the world were watching the borders, is the Israel's controlled borders were being watched. So that was the mission of those 200 people that was trying to get there. Okay. Um, the, you, you are an internationally known artist and uh, your politics are well known because they're hand in hand with the, with the art. So how did uh, Palestinian folks receive you if they knew who you were? Did they know who you were? And how did they receive just the idea of folks coming to help break the embargo? And, and what, what was some of the feedback you got? Well, um, the, the feedback from the Palestinian people was, well, I guess uh, it was incredible, um, to say the least. I'm, I almost don't have enough words to explain. Um, I guess I, I want to explain a little bit about how it happened because the idea was that we would go, as soon as we got into Cairo, which I arrived in Cairo from New York, and uh, many people arrived from different places, like I said. We converged on this hotel. We were supposed to go to, to Gaza the first day that we were in Cairo, meaning everybody get together and get on this convoy and go. However, the mission quickly changed, and um, instead of being able to go the first day, we were held up, not only one day, that came and passed, but then two days came and passed, and three days came and passed, and four days came, and we ended up, I, because I arrived a little later than some people, I stayed in Cairo five days before we were ever even uh, getting together to go to Gaza, but there were some people who had even come a week before me who had already spent five to seven days. So what was really going on was that the Egyptian government did not want the people who had gathered here in Cairo to get into Gaza. Um, it became evident, more and more evident, that we would find resistance from the Egyptian government because of Israel. Uh, who, If you know this area very well, and you know that the first place that Obama went to visit in after his election in Africa was Cairo, uh, was precisely to talk about some of the issues in this area and in the region, uh, which I gotta say didn't help at all. I don't know what he went over there to do. But the reality is, is that the tensions in the so-called quote unquote Middle East are worse than they ever have been. Um, so after they held us up for more than five days, that's when this bureaucracy reached a boiling point. Uh, because if you can imagine, there are 200 people who have all given their resources 
uh, not only spent that time to come into Cairo to go to Palestine, to go to Palestine, but they've been being held up for a week, and some of them even close to two weeks. So the the frustration is high. Um, and then the reason why we're being held up is for paperwork uh, or general forms that can be given out by the British consulate or the American embassy or whoever. But they were basically designed to run us around and exhaust people's time, people's patience, people's resources. Because at people who were going on this trip were people like me and you. They weren't, um, we, you know, people who just had endless time and were just revolutionaries with, who had endless resources. Um, there are people who had to get back to their jobs, who had to get back to their houses, get back to their communities. And so with limited amount of time and limited amount of resources, it made a lot of people feel weary about whether you would even get into Palestine or not. But this was the plan of the Egyptian government. So um, on top of that, they told the, the people who had put all their resources together, maybe uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of resources, to not only uh, get together food, but medical supplies in the form of wheelchairs, mattresses, buckets, crayons, paintbrushes, uh, school supplies, whatever people may need, diapers. Um, these are things that people who have been in, in, in an embargo like Palestine, like Gaza in particular. And if you know what embargo is, I don't have to tell you that it's, it's, it's a military term, uh, it's, a, it's a war term. Uh, basically for an undeclared war on a region, because this is what an embargo is. It's an attempt to wipe out uh, a people. It's genocide, basically. Uh, so for the last six months, the people inside Gaza had not received, you know, basic food and water and clothes, uh, visits from their family members. Um, it's basically what you, uh, what you are witnessing um, from their news, from Fox News and CNN and what they allow you to see uh, was an open-air prison is what Gaza had, was, and, and not, this is the reason for the mission. So to go all the way back to your question, what was it like or what did the people in Palestine feel? How, well, how did they react to you? The reaction was amazing and because, and the reason why I had to set it up that way was because after knowing that we were trying to get in there for the last five days and knowing that we had been held back and not even knowing if we would make it at all, and knowing that the Egyptian government did not want us to get all those resources in. They took away all the food. They said, no, we can't bring the food in. You can't bring, we had, uh, the, the group had brought two ambulances to donate to a, 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 um, a, a medical center inside Gaza. But it was the Egyptian government, controlled by Israel, of course, which said, no, you can't bring the ambulances. You can't bring your food. You can't bring, it, bring your supplies. As a matter of fact, you can't even go into Gaza for three or five days the way you thought you would be going in. As a matter of fact, we're only limiting you to 24 hours. You can only go take all your 200 people in and out of this place, and you only have 24 hours to do it. So by the time we arrived into the border of Gaza, you can tell we were exhausted. We were, uh, you know, we had fought, you know, as hard a fight as we can fight. It was the kind of organizing like I'd never been a part of. You know, I know the U.S. kind of side of organizing. Um, you know, kind of like this mass organizing on a, to, to lead an international mission. It was it was uh, it was something that I really I really was in awe of the leadership for, which I need to talk about that for the leadership question. Um, but to break it all down, we got over to the Gaza side, and there was a huge celebration. I mean, an unbelievable celebration. People who had been waiting at the border, who knew that we would come, who just decided that they wouldn't leave until we came, and um, we had the wherewithal to continue the campaign. We got through the border. When we got there, there was uh, 
it was at night. Um, another long story to, to talk about getting through the border it was an amazing thing. Um, but we got in at night, and uh, we had only been granted 24 hours, but the, as soon as we got in, there was a huge, uh, kufiyas were waving in the air, uh, people were out at the border meeting us, um, there were families reuniting, you saw tears of families who had not seen each other for a long time, who were together finally. Um, you, I was greeted with the red, black, and green Marcus Garvey's liberation flag, which was, uh, I think, a gesture of solidarity from the struggle of African people in this diaspora, seeing that there was unity with the struggle for Palestinian people in Gaza. Um, and, uh, and also, there was uh, even a, a, a news press conference that happened. It, 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 it became really insignificant, but yet I saw it happen, and it was one that included people like Cynthia McKinney and Charles Barron and the Prime Minister of Gaza and things of that nature. But there was just a general huge uh, celebration and the look and the feel in the people's eyes were, was a hope. There was no uh, depression. It was no, you almost could not tell that these people had been warned by war. You, because uh, you know, of the level of resilience in their eyes, the, the presence of, uh, of and, and the bright smiles, you know what I mean? And, um, and I have to say that it's, the, the contrast between that and Cairo is everything because in Cairo, where we were forced basically to be held hostage in this hotel, we were hostage, I have to say, for those five days. Um, Cairo was, is a, was, was such a dirty city. I'm talking about one of the dirtiest cities I've ever been in in my, in my life. I, I live in New York. I'm, I'm in New York. I've lived there for 18 years. This place makes New York look like a hospital. You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, I'm talking about a, a stream of garbage flowing through, you know, through the city. Um, the, you know, the things that I had come to know about Egypt or Cairo uh, through uh, Dr. Ben, uh, Dr. Ben and and uh, John Henry Clark and uh, and Chick Antediop and uh, so many of my teachers who Ivan Van Sertima, and so many of my teachers who taught me about uh, what helped create us in this room, the first civilization, and it, it had become something uh, less than desirable. I mean, the Nile River was filthy because uh, people were, it was strong with trash, and then anybody who's been to Cairo, you already know. So it, 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 what was most glaring was leaving Cairo, this so-called, this, this free and international city, and going to a place that was under an embargo and being cordoned off, but when we got there, it's the 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 feeling was fresher. The people, the air was cleaner. The the uh, the, the hugs were warmer. The food was better um, than in a place where we had was so-called free. So that was uh, that was our first impression. So it seems like you might be saying that uh, the key to appreciating life and it is to fight. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know so I mean obviously there was death all around and um, you, so, and, and you saw this 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 acknowledgement of life and this, uh, this 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 great spirit what were some of the because because we a lot of us I'm sure almost everybody here has seen the destruction on the news it's a whole nother thing to uh, see the destruction in person, and, and I think what you gave was something that we, we wouldn't necessarily know, which is the, the spirit of the people still being there. Yeah. But I think it's, it's important to talk about some of that destruction and, yeah. and possible 
death that you may have seen? Well, I can say this. I mean, I you know um, we got into Gaza. It was nine o'clock at night. Um, we were given twenty-four hours to be in and out of the place, in and out. By the way, they say if we didn't get out in time, then they would close back in the embargo, and we would be locked in this place until there was enough political pressure to lift it again and let us out, um, which could be another year. Who knows? Uh, so upon um, getting there, uh, it was nighttime. And uh, so there was almost like a parade or procession that led the buses that we were in through the town where people were kind of lined around and in the streets and welcoming us and we were led to a hotel. There wasn't much that I could see at night uh, in the way of destruction. There was uh, just the spirit of high uh, energy, welcome, uh, open arms. Um, they led us to a huge feast. I mean, the food was like five times better than I could ever get in Cairo. You know, those little dry falafels was nothing compared to like the, the rice and beans and the, and the chicken, you know, even though I don't eat chicken, but I, I it, you know, I know it smelled real good. You know? <laughs> and, but I, I can say that uh, it wasn't, it was, I didn't get to see much that night. I knew that uh, we were on the coast because I could hear the water. And which was warm, very warm. Um, and uh, what I did go get to see that night, as soon as I got into, to, uh, we got into Gaza, we had to go to the hotel and 200 people were led to their hotel room, which was something like a Marriott, but a little bit, with, but you know, with no water pressure. Uh, and uh, so we, people, people went to bed that night and instead of going to bed that night, um, I hooked up with some of the comrades who I had known uh, because I had been doing some work with some hip-hop artists uh, from Palestine before I had even got a chance to go to Palestine. I said my relationship has been years, of, years long with, with uh, the Palestinian community. So there's a group called PR, or Palestinian Rappers, and it was one of their members, Amen, his name is Amen, he met us at the border, and uh, I had talked to him and even done songs with him, but I had never met him, so I met him, and we got together, and when everybody went to sleep at the hotel that night, so around midnight, I took a stroll through the hood. We went, we went to the community and we went, um, you know, just uh, walking and I was able to see, um, you know, what the streets were like, graffiti in Arabic. Um, I was able to see like the modern day kind of throw up or tags that would be like of uh, Yasser Arafat. He was like, you know, in the way you would see Martin Luther King in the black community on the wall, you see Yasser Arafat. Um, and you see like, uh, you know, this is a tightly knit community. What I did get to see, what Aitman did take me to go see, what though was amazing, um, because he took me to his old house. He had recently, I learned that Aitman, my friend, the rapper, had recently uh, his had lost his father um, by Israel uh, from the war. And so he took me to his house where he lived that had been hit with four missiles. So I go and I look up and he shows me his house and it's, you see the bombed out window. He takes us up about seven flights and we go in the house. He unchains the door. There's a huge shrine outside the door of his father who is obviously a decorated military guy. Uh, and we go inside and uh, we're in looking through by flashlight and he sh the first thing he shows is the window. And you see where the missiles came directly in through that window and he explains that he and his whole family were home and the, the missile came through the front window and directly hit his father and took him out immediately. 
And so he's, as he's telling me the story and taking me through, he's showing me kind of how it happened, how everybody scattered, how the black, uh, blackened fire soot, soot walls, the blackened house, uh, in where they were in position and how they had to gather each other from each room and go downstairs and wait for the EMS to come, the ambulances. And when the ambulances came to tend to his father, they went upstairs and just as they all got in and secured the situation, which you gotta see was out of control, two more missiles came in and killed everybody, all the EMS workers, all 17 workers at one time. So he's, as he's telling me this, this story, my mouth is on the floor. I mean, I can't even believe it. Um, you know, it really, it reminded me, you know, I had the feeling of inside of, I don't know how many of you have ever seen the picture of the murder of Fred Hampton on December 4th, 1969, when he's laid across his, uh, his door jam uh, and blood is running out of his head and the only thing you can think of, you, you just get this numb feeling of injustice. And that's all I could feel in the whole room. Um, there were about four or five of us that we were, were being led around and he would, you know, was kicking around and he would show us where his bedroom used to be, which was now like a charred, like, you know, remains of a bedroom and then you would have, he showed us like he even went and found a, a missile casing because uh, the missiles had come in the window and gone out the back. So there were holes through the, through the whole apartment, but there was one missile that hadn't gotten away. He showed me the actual casing. Um, it really moved me to be there um, at that time. And, um, but definitely I know that he wanted me to understand what it meant uh, to be in Gaza, what it meant to live under siege, to not at, at any moment not know when you, you could be okay and when you wouldn't be okay. So it was that that I did witness. And um, we left there and went about a block away to his mother's house. We arrived at his mom's house at like four in the morning and she's up moving around. She made us a, a beautiful uh, dinner or breakfast, whatever you call it, it was at five o'clock in the morning. Um, and we waited for the, for the Adan prayer. And then the Adan is the, the first prayer, first Muslim prayer of the day. Of the day. And uh, they went to go pray. I was so tired, I, I caught like 30 minutes of nap. And then we got up the next day to go meet the rest of the group, the Viva Palestina group who was still back at the hotel. And that's, they were, uh, this was when we were scheduled to go on a tour to see like the destruction of the buildings and the evidence of the war that Israel had been leveling and the bombings that, that Israel had been uh, putting on our community. So that, that it was, I, I got to see that that night and then, you know, next came the next days, the, the daytime stuff, which was amazing as well. And I even have pictures of it, which I think would, the pictures say a thousand words and hopefully some of my, the things that I'm describing to you, you know, you're getting a vision in your head and hopefully that's what the pictures say to you as well. Um. Should we go to the pictures now, or should we um, do that after? If you want to do it, yeah. if we, we can. Uh, well, we got to turn off the lights. Let's, let's yeah, finish, let's finish talking. Yeah, okay, cool. So, the, 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 from the people that you talked to, obviously, um, it, it, this question is about how people think of themselves in this fight, because um, you're in, you you many of your friends and family are getting killed and um, your whole, you never know when, when you're going to die. Yet, do they feel like they're in 
the fight themselves that they're actively in the fight the people that you talk to obviously just anecdotally right um, do they feel like they're in the fight or like this fight is just happening and they're there um, I gotta say that of course there's a sense of purpose there's a high sense of political maturity the people who I know uh, understand the clear clearly understand the question I mean they clearly understand Zionism can clearly uh, you can feel that you can feel there's a clear understanding of where the U.S. stands, where U.S. imperialism is. I think that's why symbolically it was so important that the people who were there who came from different countries did come uh, to break that kind of look or that, that scene. Um, I can tell you that the war on, the, on, on street level is a different manifestation of this kind of romantic idea of free Gaza, free Palestine that we would have in, in a very romantic kind of sensational, adventurous way that we talk about it from where we are in our seats because <coughs> it will be those kind of things that will be passing through my mind when I'm up on stage talking about free Palestine but had not gone. Well, how much freedom can I really bring to Palestine? So to me, the idea of what uh, it would mean to be in that kind of conflict situation all, all the time under siege, uh, open air prison, American made bombs and missiles raining on our community, uh, F-16 missile uh, expanders um, taking out uh, uh, mosques and schools every day and you not knowing. Um, for me, especially when I'm able to understand that the people who were, became the victims of this were mostly innocent people. As a matter of fact, my man Amon's father was uh, not a member of the government of Gaza, uh, which many of you may know is called Hamas. But there is uh, a, a, another uh, kind of government that, uh, that is over the West Bank and it's called Fetah. And Fetah is the one the, that... that uh, Amen's father belonged to. So it was even confusing to me that he, he, this guy would be here and he's not even a bona fide member of the Hamas organization that, that is called terrorists. So uh, I want to make this distinction very clear too because my points of view here are something that I'm going to give you that maybe uh, somebody like Cynthia McKinney is not going to tell you or George Galloway who led the mission or even uh, Councilman Barron. They have a different relationship to you and their responsibility to you. Uh, you know, Cynthia McKinney intends to be your next presidential nominee for the Green Party. She was before, and maybe, and hopefully, she will run again uh, because I think. But because of those ties, some of the things that I'm going to say to you about Hamas, for instance, who is the government of Gaza, she won't won't say uh, diplomatically for all kinds of diplomatic reasons. Because for how I saw it, I saw Hamas, the the, the people who uh, who are the leadership and who are seen as the number one resistance against U.S. imperialism and Zionism in that region because it's that resistance from that government that really brought the situation to a head now. I don't see the leadership of Hamas to be one that to me is would be uh, fit to lead Palestine out of the situation that it's in. Now I'm going to speak very carefully when I say this, right, because I know the self-determination on the, the, the behalf of the Palestinian people that's going to bring it. Um, you know, we had a lot of problems in our movement. The Black Panther Party was no, uh, was no uh, uh, walk in the garden. There were so many contradictions inside the Black Panther Party, and which I'm just a student of. But so you can imagine what's going on in Palestine and the many different ways people think that, that we can overcome imperialism or overcome the Israel domination, right? Well, I see Hamas as, as, uh, as one that in, uh, that uh, instills government through fear. 
and I was able to see that um, because of the way they treated the people around our, uh, our, our group, our 200 people group, we were more uh, corralled. Uh, they looked more like SWAT team members. It, uh, you know, and I was also able to see, you know, evidence that, you know, if you didn't unite with Hamas uh, or the leadership, then, then you would not receive uh, what the government had to offer. And I don't think that's fair government. Uh, I think there should be ability for people to have uh, a discourse with the government about what's the problems in the government. And I don't see that what's happening in Gaza. So uh, I think that was the character of the war on the ground. Uh, how to fight a war, why you having a war, how do you agree on leadership at the same time. And uh, so I developed my opinion, which is just my opinion, because there are probably people here who are from Palestine or who have been to Palestine, who have people in Palestine who can tell me different things about Hamas than what I saw, but I can only tell you what I saw uh, and why I think the things that, why I think what I think. And uh, just uh, so I can just, really I wanna say this, um, because the Viva Palestina mission happened so this coalition could get all of the resources into Gaza. The thing that I noticed that became a huge uh, contradiction was one, as soon as we got into Gaza, and nobody was not gonna tell you this from this coalition, the leadership of the coalition left. His name is George Galloway. You need to go Google this man's name so that you know what kind of uh, mission we were on. His name is George Galloway. He is a British parliamentarian. And uh, he is one who is uh, more on the left fringes. So he talked about uh, Middle East issues in the British government, and British uh, politics. He's the one who leans towards pro-Palestine issues. So he leads this whole thing. But let me tell you, the whole, week, the whole mission we were there, we, he was there until we got to Gaza. And the minute that we got to Gaza, he left. And so that meant that the next people who would be in leadership, and because the pe he was the leader of the mission, hands down. So when he left, who became leadership? Charles Barrett and Cynthia McKinney. And not because they wanted to be leadership, but because they knew how to lead. Not because they had signed on for the mission or knew what time it was, but because they came just like I came to see Gaza. And he had led the mission, but he left us high and dry. And so they were left there to see the mission. And this actually happened. So this was amazing when I saw it happen to me. Um, because I knew that there were 200 people, other people, who didn't see him leave in the cover of a van in the middle of the night the way I did. Because uh, I saw it. I saw it happen. And, but they didn't see it. And, and there was excitement and there was a huge thing happening. So the next day when people woke up and were ready to go on the itinerary, one, we came to find out there was new leadership. And that leadership emerged as Charles Barron. And I'm so happy that he was there because he's an OG. If y'all don't know uh, what an OG is, and look it up. Um, <laughs> But so he, he pulled out his OG status and he led this group. He led the group with uh, fantastic uh, charisma. Um, and I think for and, and so when Charles Barron became leadership, what emerged more than anything was not that that this mission for Viva Palestina was this humanitarian aid mission that was going to bring all these resources into Palestine, but it became more a public relations uh, mission to change the outward look of the Hamas government. So instead of giving resources and energy toward the people of Gaza, which is our intention, what I saw happening was we were giving our resources toward the government of Gaza, which became a problem in my eyes because I don't think everybody there was in unity with the government of Hamas. 
I don't think the preachers for peace were. I don't think the rabbis who came on the mission were ready for that kind of action. I don't think the, uh, you know, so mind you, they came with this kind of mission to give to non-governmental organizations. But yet we were, the, the, we were be, being handed directly over to the government itself. And uh, so for me, when I became informed about it, I kind of tried to inform the people who I was with about it, and they saw it as well. And the international implications were, were huge because imagine if you came on this kind of mission and you promised to go give resources or your time to this non-governmental organization and you end up giving your resources to Hamas and you come back home to Wisconsin or Denver or wherever you're from and you get a letter or a knock on the door saying, what are you doing over there dancing with these terrorist organizations? And that can literally happen. This, is, this actually can be something that actually happens and we, you know, I'm, I, I know what this can imply, but I think a lot of the people are caught up in the, you know, the, the mystique, the, the exotic, you know, the, you know, about the bravado of the thing, and not thinking about what it means. And so when they're informed about what time it is, they choose to just go on a mission anyway, to go on this kind of uh, meeting. They want to meet the prime minister and take pictures with him. And I'm like, no, we don't want to do that. We, what we want to do is continue the mission we were on. We want to give our resources and we want to get the hell out of here in 24 hours. But people got kind of caught up and that's kind of what happened. And to me, that became like one of the biggest contradictions of the whole thing. But I have to be thankful for Charles Barron because he sprung into leadership like none I've ever seen before. I know I didn't have the wherewithal to do it. Um, and I would not have wanted to be on the, those buses with those people, but he stayed, even though he knew that the mission wasn't, was one that had gotten kind of hijacked. And uh, so I'm thankful for him. And, and also, it gave Cynthia, myself, and about five of, more of us, we snuck out and snuck to the back, and we had our own tour away from the Viva Palestina tour. They got to see the real Gaza that had been blown away and uh, the schools and meet people who had had you know, gunshots through their kidneys and their eyes and were still living to tell the conflict about between them and the Israeli um, army, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, that, that, that is one interesting thing that happened that I don't think people uh, will outwardly get to know. People just hear about, oh, there was a huge convoy and it broke the siege and it was, it, it dared to be courageous, but the reality is the, po the, polit the politics of the convoy in itself, were, were, they were haywire. And um, I would never, ever go on a mission like that again uh, in a coalition where, people, where there was no uh, principles of unity, one. There was no principles. There was no principle for why people would unite. There was no, and, and then th there wasn't a uh, general kind of consensus about who was on the convoy. There were people there for all kinds of reasons. And of course, when that happens, it leaves, it leaves an openness for people to come and be agent provocateurs or snitches to try to derail the whole mission. And, <coughs> pardon me again, <coughs> that is exactly what happened. There were actually snitches that were discovered, actually discovered while we were in the middle of meeting intensely in, the, in those five days in Cairo, there were actually snitches that were literally uncovered and exposed to the 200 people while we were there. How, how did they get exposed? Well, uh, imagine we're having this meeting and we're talking about, okay, uh, back and forth negotiations and the Egyptian government is telling us, well, you can't take your ambulances and you can't take your stuff. And the people in the room are like, well, we paid for it. And how are you going to take our ambulances that we paid for? And so there's this huge kind of talk in the, in the room about it. And then all of a sudden, the guy, George Galloway, He's a heavy set guy who has like a he's from he's Scottish I believe who has a big goatee 
and he smokes Cuban cigars. Google him. Definitely Google the man. <laughs> All of a sudden, he, he says, there's a snitch, and he's in the back of the room, and he has a blue shirt on, and he works for the Egyptian government, and he points like this. And this is in the middle of a huge meeting of 200 people. So you can imagine the frustrated people who had gotten hijacked from their resources, been waiting in, in this hotel purgatory, Egyptian ho hotel, and who were denied our interest to go to Gaza for five days, and some of them for 10 days. When, we were, when some of them were told and made aware that there was a snitch in the room, they, it, it became almost a near life and death situation for that man. Because people ran for him. People tore his, they tore his papers from his hand, ripped them from his hand, at which were written in Arabic and, and read them aloud. People tore his shirt open to see if he was wearing things that was, you know, he, he was assaulted um, and could have ended up losing his life. Imagine there's 200 people trying to put their hand on you. Um, and so I thought, one, that, that, that to me was uh, out of control. I, I would not, you know, it to me was, it, it to me yeah, was organization out of control. But um, you have no idea whether that was, was real I, or he was on yeah, the right side. There you know. <laughs> so there you go. So th these, things, um, th these things happen uh, as well. So you expressed that there was hope in the people when you got to Palestine. Yeah. You know, I, I get depressed right now with what's going on to, to me in my life, which is pretty privileged. Where, where does their hope lie? I think their hope lies in the fact that they know that there's justice. Um, you know, sometimes, like, I, you know, I would wonder where the hope would come from, too. And how do we see the end? Because people who know the, the conflict from its beginning, from 1948, and who've seen this piece of land called Palestine get smaller and smaller, and the Israel settlements get larger and larger, people who've seen their level of life uh, and, and their rights be taken inch by inch, you know, then you what you're witnessing almost is genocide, and you wonder where does the hope lie as well. And you wonder from where can I, from Santa Cruz, where can I, how can I throw my little pebble to affect this place that's a hundred million miles away and going through uh, with all of my U.S. dollars, even though I don't want them to, they go towards forming bombs and missiles that are raining down on this community. You know, even though I don't want them to, uh, me just buying gas helps to do that. You know, to get, just to come to this meeting. Um, so. Where does the hope lie? You know, I think, uh, and what's crazy is, you know, there's actually a strategy that's held by the Palestinian people, especially in Gaza, because even though Israel gets billions and billions of U.S. dollars, I mean billions, um, more than uh, goes to the whole of Africa, or even half of Africa, that, I mean, that receives not even half of the resources that goes into this little tiny place called Israel, right? With all that being said, the birth rate of Israel is declining, <clears throat> where population is becoming a problem. Just populating the area is becoming a problem. And with that being said, the birth rate of the Palestinian people is rising. They're having babies at six times the rate of Israeli people. And an actual strategy towards winning, which was like really uh, mind-blowing to me, was to actually out-populate the Israeli people. And, they, and I think the idea is that in a, you know, if they would last the next 10 years, then there probably would be more Palestinians 
than there would even be Israelis. And um, the, the, uh, which is evidenced by the fact that the Israel government is calling on any and every one who, who would unite with Israel to come and, and live. You, they, they would give you a house, uh, a little bit of money, and you can become an honorary Israeli if you would just sit on this stolen land and, and uh, occupy it in the name of Israel. And so they're calling on people around the world, and there's this huge, like, ploy, this huge campaign. So you'll find people from all walks of life in Israel right now claiming that space because uh, on, for the right of basically genocide. Yeah. So that's, that's an interesting tactic. Uh, to outpopulate because my question then would be, you know, it's not one person, one vote in in uh, Israel and the, and the occupied territories. So, you know, and I've seen figures that say that the, that the population of that 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 Palestinians already outnumber. You know, if you include the people that are that are uh, that are now uh, that that have been kicked out of Palestine. And it's it, without those folks that it's similar. So if it had double the population, if it's not one person, one vote, it kind of doesn't. Does that matter? That would be my question. Well, I think there's a lot of people. There's a lot of strategizing they got to go on. I, I don't think that people got to answer, but I do think people are um, fighting in all different kind of ways. Was really my evidence of, of what I, what I was trying to say. I don't think uh, that that's exactly what's been figured out. But even more. Um, you know, there, there's like you said, there's uh, there's growing adversity to any kind of resistance uh, that it would be. I think that's the reason for me going in the first place was to be able to uh, identify in a certain kind of way, not only with where the kind of resources that I've been talking about this make-believe place in my head were going to, but also uh, to relate that kind of struggle to the kinds of struggle that, that happened inside the U.S. And, and it's uh, better to bring it back to, to places like this and tell you that you, you too are living in an open air prison because you are. Um, to come back and tell you too that, you know, what they're using on them over there, uh, which will probably affect those future generations, is called depleted uranium. They're using a, a, a chemical compound called depleted uranium. And the weapons, and it, what it will, it will do is further uh, tear away the generations of genocide, uh, the generations to come. And they're using those same kind of tactics here. You know what I mean? Um, the stuff that they put in the food is directly related, to, right, in, right in the U.S., is directly related to the things that uh, chemically that they're inducing the population with in Palestine. <coughs> what, do you, what do you think about the uh, international boycott Israel movement? I think... Uh, we need as much strategy around fighting imperialism. I think the idea is that we have to be clear what we're fighting. You know, I'm, I'm not just fighting Israel. I'm fighting imperialism uh, because that's the ugly power source that helps to give all the weight to Zionism in the world, which gives weight to the idea that some people are destined or ordained or better than other people is because the power is given to that idea. So I think we have to undermine that. And I think, uh, you know, the Free Gaza uh, Coalition and, and the movement, uh, the Existence is Resistance organization, the Break the Siege or Stop the Siege.org, uh, BDS, Boycott, Divest, and Sanction, 
uh, those these uh, these uh, actions that are being taken are some of the chief ways that we're going to be able to do anything. Because a lot of us feel like, hey, man, what can I do? And why were you even over there? Because there's a war going on right here in our community. So um, we have to know about what that is. A lot of you know organizations. So when we, I guess, when we do the question and answer. Please make no hesitation in standing up saying, well, this is one organization as well, because that's how I got linked up with this in the first place, by getting linked with organizations and actions that's going to help solve the problem. But uh, imperialism must go. That's what it is, basically. And um, this actually got to be linked up. Uh, we have to be able to link it, link it up with what's happening with the politics inside this country today and our ability to criticize this particular kind of government, because it's okay. It's okay, you know, to, to be able to say, Obama's not making the right moves around Palestine. I'm not saying nothing at all. Obama's not making the right moves when he's putting troops on, on the borders of, of Colombia, uh, threatening Venezuela. Obama's not making the right move in Afghanistan. It's okay. I'm not a racist because I say it. <laughs> and that's what they will make you believe if you want to criticize this government at this particular time. It has put a, a, some level of paralysis in this movement that has made it um, in, a, in a time that was very progressive to be able to talk about what's happening in the government. It kind of put our, our movement in a place where we kind of um, work waiting to see what happens. And I think the idea is that we have to get in front of the ball right now. We have to uh, start anti-war coalition. That's what I think the Palestinian thing is about. That's why, that's why I find myself going. Because the same, it's the same war I see raining down in my community. So we have to be able to call it war wherever it is and be a part of these anti-war coalitions that's being, that, that your government is investing in. <clears throat> All right. Um, just one last question before we go to Q&A. Um, there are, and, and, and this is somewhat related to what you said, but not really. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of... Move, there, there are a lot of artistic movements coming out of Palestine that are and, and, and that that are expressing some of the things that that are going on there, and one of them is hip hop. Mm. Um, what have you come in contact with, and what do you? Why do you think hip hop is is uh, is one of the big tools that's starting to be used? Well, first of all, I like to say that hip hop, that as we know it, that we listen to is the right arm of the bourgeoisie media uh, in, the, in the United States. That's what the hip hop that you know today is. It is the same media that produces the Washington Post that creates the Source Magazine. It's the same media that creates the New York Post, that creates BET and MTV and that Viacom and Rupert Murdoch owns. They're only vehicles to continue a pretty much brainwashing and whitewashing of the kind of political understanding uh, that we need. And definitely that we need to give to young people who are carrying the, the burden of the future. So when you talk about hip hop, most of the places that I'm going in the world, I have to explain to them that what I'm doing is not what they're doing. That I'm not an American. That I'm not the guy who's going to come through talking about Lex Coops, Beamers, and Benz. You know, um, I'm, you know, I'm going to have a real conversation with you about what, what's going on in your community and in your life. And so, uh, everywhere in the world, and Boots know just as much, just as, much as me, because we were in South Africa together probably 10 years ago. 
people would say, we would show up in uh, Soweto or Orlando West, and uh, the question would be, you know, where's your Tommy Hilfiger? You know, uh, they, they would be rapping in our, in our language, in English, people who speak, uh, the, one of the many dialects of the South Africa would be trying to talk in broken English, and I would be steady saying, don't use my colonizer's language, use your own. Use your own. Use, so I'm, I'm, you know, so I gotta say that about hip hop and how hip hop's being perceived and at culturally around the world. It represents American culture. So the thing I gotta say about pa Palestine that's a little bit different than that is that it has not uh, had the the level of experience to understand where hip -hop, the tool that hip hop can be yet. Has anybody here seen a fantastic documentary called Slingshot Hip Hop? Good, yeah, some of you know about Slingshot Hip Hop. Slingshot Hip Hop is about a rap group from the West Bank of Palestine. They're called Damn, or the Arab MCs. The Arab MCs, Damn. <clears throat> and uh, these guys I got to know, because the West Bank has a little different relationship with imperialism than Gaza does. So these artists who made who have made very popular songs in Arabic, one of them is called Mina Rabi, and they, the hook is real, it's, it's crazy. Have you heard the song before? I, I heard the album. Yeah, the album's crazy. And so the, the song goes, Mina Rabi, Mina Rabi, and it means I'm not a terrorist, I'm not a terrorist. And it's like uh, their explanation to the fact that just because they're Palestinian, the, the, how people are regarding the, their community. So this song became kind of like, uh, the Palestinian outcry for like, you know, these are the list of demands, you know, this is how you treat us, you know. And so it also showed the, the, the power of hip hop. But I gotta say that inside the borders of Palestine, uh, hip hop is not regarded very highly. It's not supported by the government. Uh, there is still a huge effort to connect the old Arabic music and hip, where hip hop is. You know, where the dances that they do, that are in the line, they, they do this kind of line dance where there's a kind of generation that has done those dances for generations who are meeting the new guys who are incorporating now hip-hop moves with it. And this is new. And this is something that's it's, it's, it's in question by the older generation, um, but not yet harnessed to be able to say, well, this is the way we can deliver messages through hip-hop. See, me and you, we do it that way. And there's hundreds of other MCs who have chosen the path of social justice versus uh, the the uh, you know the role of reporting to you you know ruling class commercialism and materialism over and over and over and over and over. There, so there's artists like Boost from the Coup and uh, and people who I know and love, who and many of you know as well, who do this. And uh, so it's our job to be able to hook up with those artists, those Palestinian artists, and show how important hip-hop can be. And so that's what I've been doing. All right, I want to bring up JR to hit you with something. Well, I want everybody to know that this is a um, fundraiser for the San Francisco Bayview newspaper, which is dealing with independent media. We might have some copies in the back. I'll see if we gave them all out, as well as the Block Reporter radio show which out here in Santa Cruz is heard on KPFA. So it's part of the unpaid staff of KPFA. I'm a member of the unpaid staff of KPFA. We gotta raise money. 
to fund media that really supports the people's struggles, um, with places where you won't hear this kind of kind of discussion um, on different on other media, you won't hear this kind of discussion. This goes on on the Block Report. Police terrorism cases like Oscar Grant, Lavelle Mixon go on on the Block Report. You know what's going on with the. The Salvadorian anti-water privatization movement that's on the block report. So, you know, we just want to invite everybody. I'm going to walk through with the hat. You know, we'll take a brief intermission. Oh, we got the bucket. Okay, so we got the bucket, and, um, you know, and then right after we do the donation thing, we can resume. If everybody gave $1, don't know what to pay. Yeah. Can you tell? I want to. Um, I want to say, uh, I've been a member of this movement a long time. Uh, matter of fact, no, I haven't. Not, not really at all. Uh, I'm young to this movement. Um, I've probably been organizing for probably about 17 years. I've, uh, and we got a long way to go because we're not, we still not yet free. Um, it is so important to be able to maintain uh, our centers that we organize in. And it's because that's the place where the heartbeat of our movement happens at. So um, in order to do that, you need people resources, you need energy, you need people with skills, you need people who can, cook, who can cook, you need people who can clean, people who know how to uh, do healthcare and childcare, uh, you need teachers and you need students, you need it all, you need painters, you need it all. And you also need resources, you need money. Um, and making a call for uh, funds, making a call for donations has not ever been an easy thing to do. A lot of times we associate it with that same old church shit that goes on where we pass the hat and it's real, some, some real uncomfortable thing. Um, but I'd like to say that when you, uh, definitely when you're here in this particular place, what you are donating your resources to is being able to support the San Francisco Bayview, which is an independent uh, independent media uh, uh, outlet. Because without it, you wouldn't be able to hear things like, um, you know, they've been so gracious to print out my report back uh, thousands of words from Gaza and some of the pictures. Well, I don't think I would have had that kind of outlet to do it. Of course, some places on the internet or, or deadpress.com, but you know, in the Bay Area, who's responsible for making it happen? So it's JR who does that work, who helps to get the Bayview out, and uh, that's what you supported. And you're also supporting the POCC, which is the Prisoners of Conscience Committee, an organization that was created by young chairman Fred Hampton Jr., who was son of slain political uh, leader Fred Hampton Sr. of the Black Panther Party. Uh, if you know who he was, then you know he, was, uh, he had the countenance of a modern-day Tupac, he had the ability to organize the masses by the thousands who created the largest chapter of the Black Panther Party that existed, who was gunned down by this U.S. government and the local Chicago Police Department under the directive of COINTELPRO or the Counterintelligence Program at a very young 21 years of age on December 4th, 1969, uh, which we're approaching the 40th year anniversary of the assassination or the murder of Fred Hampton Sr. of the Black Panther Party, who was definitely one of the most gifted, talented organizers that the Black Panther Party had created. Uh, an organization that was the pinnacle of revolutionary resistance and definitely in this country and raised international questions around the world 
so that people will be able to see the flag of resistance inside the U.S. and create uh, what Huey P. Newton gave birth to, which created people like George Jackson and Bunchy Carter and little <clears throat> Bobby Hutton and Fred Hampton and then Fred Hampton Jr., my comrade, and then uh, Boots from the Coup and then and one. Um, who are all, the, the reason why we're able to be here is because of these comrades and work that they have been doing. So I'd like to thank, uh, that, that's why you have the POCC, the Block Report Radio, and uh, that's why you have San Francisco Bay Pew. Um, i also like to take the time now, not just to, because JR is, is uh, phenomenal for, that, for those works, and he helped to organize us to this event here. Um, but during uh, Oscar Grant's rebellion, that's because that's what it was. It wasn't no damn riot. You know, riots are happenstance. Uh, rebellions are part of political objective. Uh, you got to know the difference so we can be able to up the ante and call it a rebellion when it's a rebellion and, and, and let riots live. We don't need riots. We need strategic understanding of how we get what we need um, to happen. But during the rebellion that ensued after the injustice behind Oscar Grant, it was my comrade, young brave J.R., the Minister of Information of the POCC, who uh, was rounded up by the Oakland Police Department or whoever PD it was, some PD, uh, rounded him up and, uh, and he is now fighting a case for defending the life of Oscar Grant. So I'd like to say to you, um, you know, please, uh, your donations also go towards um, helping defend J.R. Um, you know Jr. I'm talking about the same Jr. who's been on the stage right in front of you all night. This guy courageously defended uh, in defense of the people. Um, you know, took one for our uh, struggle, and is right now. We need to see after see about him. We need to be in the courtroom uh, in Oakland so that we can uh, be able to watch the the system do what it does. Make sure it doesn't give him any kind of uh, kangaroo justice. To make sure that it doesn't railroad him, uh, so we can keep uh, the state's hands off of Jr. and uh, so we can make sure that uh, the future of, of our lives doesn't end up in the same place that Oscar Grant's did. So um, I just want to say that and say thank you for your time as well and everything else. So I guess we can we can uh, go on with some more questions if um, we could. Okay, let's do it. So who's got a question? Is anybody in here who got anything uh, they want to comment? Well, yes. Okay, I want to, um, just as a follow-up question, why do you think all the way left? Well, I, I have a lot of speculation, but I don't have answers. Do you mind speculating? Sure, I don't mind speculating. <laughs> I don't. Um, I learned something about, um, and I, you know, because before that trip, I had no idea who George Galloway was. Uh, during the trip, I came to find out that George Galloway, the British parliamentarian, had led a mission, Viva Palestina, one previous to the one that I was on, in which there was like a huge kind of, there were all kind of errors that happened, and in which he left some of the people who had come on the mission outside the immigration office in Gaza. And some of those people didn't like what happened to them. And so um, it was reports that I got back from that, as well as uh, a kind of suspicion 
that had he come and been ahead of this 200, the group of 200 people that he had promised this non-governmental support to, but handed us over in a handbasket to the government of Gaza, I support that he would have been subject to a very direct criticism at that time. I know he would have gotten one from the people that I was with. I don't know how much gall everyone else had, but I would have directly confronted that at that particular time. And uh, so I think he probably felt the heat and wanted to get out of the kitchen. To me, that's what I think about George Galloway. So um, unless he has something else to say about it, which I, I give him perfect opportunity, I'm pretty sure this will be on YouTube in about 20 minutes. <laughs> he can respond as well. You have um, been working with some Palestinian groups on the East Coast around the United States, and you also have personal relationships with artists from that area. Um, so how long would you say before you made this trip that this has been sort of a personal issue or more of a personal focus for you? It sounds like you've been really immersed in it for, for some time now. How long would you say you've been more focused on this issue that's been going on, for, like you said, since the 40s? Right. Well, I think um, since... Uh, the African Liber Liberation Movement, to me, has needed to gain an international structure. So this is not, I think, uh, solidarity, and the question of solidarity in our communities has, has been critical for a long time. Um, of course, you know, since before I was born, uh, we've been dealing with this particular con conflict in the quote-unquote Middle East. However, um, it became more and more apparent to me that we had to make these kind of hookups um, as my antenna went up to be able to recognize internationally where we are um, and, what we, and what we need because that means when uh, communities like ours get attacked and we need so international solidarity from places who can help us, um, we need that to happen. So that's kind of what I reached out to, to have been doing. And uh, it, you know, it never crossed my mind that I would ever go to Palestine. It never, and that, that wasn't something that I just ultimately was like, yeah, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm gonna get over there and see for myself. I never, I never ever came up with that. You know, I was always just fine with knowing that there was organizations who I knew would touch down on the ground. I mean, there's always a inkling of a thought that says, well, maybe what you're doing isn't getting where you think it's going. You know what I mean? But for the most part, I trusted that the organizations that I was united with, the existence of resistance organizations, and some of the other ones were were, uh, were definitely touching down and doing the work that I knew they were doing. So, um, you know, that's kind of how it happened. And, and I would say, you know, it's been going on for me, uh, my ability to say I've been working with some of these groups, maybe for about the last seven years in, in more, in a very uh, intense kind of way, where I would attend the meetings and talk about some of the objectives and know, you know, the particular families and be up on particular situations. So that's kind of how it happened. Me. Any more questions? There's a the brother here and there's a brother on the floor. What are some of the uh, domestic projects or organizations here? Here, yeah. around the Palestine issues? No, here. Here, working on what kind of issues? All issues. What, yeah, what, what projects are you I'm working on? Well, I work with an organization called the Grassroots Artist Movement. Um, it is an, uh, a, a artist rights organization that I helped to found about 10 years ago. And um, it is doing work in the Bronx right now around uh, all things 
uh, culturally related with hip hop that also uh, intersect with the lives of young people. Uh, so where we uh, engage the police, uh, we try to do a preventative kind of operation that would be a program after school uh, or, or one that would be a catch net before um, we end up in the system uh, that would allow us to, to come to these places like uh, the Grassroots Artists uh, Movement Center and do community work service instead of going to jail or uh, come learn um, you know, computer skills versus whatever else could happen. Um, so that center is happening with the grassroots artist movement. I've been working with the Uhuru movement, which gave me much of my political education. A lot of you may know the Uhuru movement from its long kind of uh, legacy in the Bay Area. Um, its leadership is Omali Ishatella, and the organization that leads, that is the head of that, is uh, the African People's Socialist Party, which uh, I'm not a member of, but which I unite with. Um, I've also worked with the Malcolm X grassroots movement, which has really led me um, to be a part of an a, a annual um, commemoration or celebration of um, our movement, um, especially in the names of um, George Jackson and Asada Shakur, called Black August. So we are doing Black August commemoration yearly, which is kind of signified by a hip-hop concert, but it's not a hip-hop thing. It's just we use hip-hop to commemorate Black August uh, but we also could do it by having a food drive or having a rally. Um, but um, we do it because so many things happen in the, in the month of August that have been significant um, milestones or markers for our movement. Um, you know, like the birth and death of Marcus Garvey or a lot of our heroes like Fred Hampton and Harry Tubman's, um, you know, journey uh, following the North Star. A lot of this stuff is signified. Uh, in August, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of initiatives going on. I think more than anything, what the, I, what I'm attempting to do is connect all of these stuff. Um, connect us, me and you, and our struggles all the time. And uh, so uh, right now there's a coalition that's being built called the Black is Back Coalition, which will serve almost as uh, a cry from especially our black community and this kind of leadership that has had to accept Barack Obama as uh, progressive, <clears throat> when we know this guy is uh, moving right by the minute, and we know that um, none of our goals and objectives, anything that we sought to have uh, accomplished uh, during his kind of stay, is going to happen uh, if it keeps going the way that it's going. So there, this coalition that I'm, I'm a part of, there are a lot of people, including Cynthia McKinney and uh, um, you know so many. Uh, uh, people who are doing great work. Rosa, Rosa Clemente, who is the vice president with uh, McKinney, um, and uh, so many aspects of the movement are also joining this coalition. And it's going to be an anti-war uh, kind of, kind of um, action. And I think you're going to hear about it uh, a lot. It's called Black is Back. So that's some of the stuff that, that I'm doing. And I'm also planning to go back to Palestine, but not into Gaza. And I'm definitely not going with Viva Palestina, that organization. Um, but I'll be probably going with Existence is Resistance and go with that organization. All right, so we're gonna take one more question and then we got this, what is it, slideshow or film? Oh yeah, we do that. Yeah, yeah. okay, so. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right, you were here first. You were there, you were there, you were there. First, first thank you for coming and sharing your experience with us. It's really helpful. Um, 
you, I think you said earlier you, you called your, your art kind of your weapon. Um, and I was, I was wondering if maybe you could kind of expand on that and maybe talk about a little bit like what you think art can and should be um, in relationship to these social resistance movements, you know, all around the world, you know, like all the stuff that you just mentioned. Okay, um, the young man asked uh, that I, he saw, he heard me mention that my art being a weapon. And uh, he also asked, well, how, and I'm going to paraphrase you, can we use uh, this art uh, along with the social justice movement? Uh, how do we see that relationship? Is that fair? Yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, it, correct. Um, I started out as an organizer. I still am. Um, I'm a student of our movement. Uh, seeing people like Malcolm X is the father of the revolutionaries of the Black Panthers, literally the fathers of these, of these people. Uh, understanding the relationship and the, the, uh, the very instrumental change from like civil rights and the black power, knowing the gear shift that happened that made that happen. Um, me being a part of a fallout of a kind of, uh, of youth that grew up without a kind of, uh, uh, a, a, um, recent kind of history of resistance. It had been wiped out and erased. It had been erased by cocaine and heroin. It had been erased by uh, and, uh, this kind of propaganda that wouldn't want to have heroes, our heroes be people like Fred Hampton or Asada Shakur or Fannie Lou Hamer or Lolita LeBron or the Young Lords or the Brown Berets. It wouldn't want us to have that leadership. So it was erased. It was erased militarily wiped out, it was jailed, it was exiled, it was, uh, you know, doped. We, we became uh, victims of, of this kind of, you know, this thing that happened to our community. We, and we haven't even clearly been able to sum it up, uh, which is the reason why we wonder where is the movement and where is the music that speaks to the movement. Um, because, and, and, but, but when you see the kind of campaign that's been waged against this resistance, then you understand why. You know, you understand why things are so messed up everywhere we are. <clears throat> so I found myself trying to figure out the world, and uh, and uh, and I found out that I wasn't gonna get it uh, out of a college degree or something silly like that. And so I it, I ended up um, trying to become a revolutionary and I, and following the footsteps of those people who I saw that were doing that kind of work. You know, people like little Bobby Hutton, you know, who joined the movement at the age of 15. When I was 17, I thought I was late. I'm like, well, he was down, he was 15. I'm, I, I, there's no reason why I can't commit. And then, so I did that. You know, I joined, uh, I first I made a, a, an organization called uh, the Black Survival Movement, and we would organize little rallies in Tallahassee, Florida, and, and uh, do some local stuff, and, and in a militant stance, do stuff. And then I ran into a bigger organization that had a, a longer history than that, called the African People's Socialist Party, which had had a 27-year unbroken history of resistance ever since uh, the Revolutionary Action Movement and Black Panther Party and so forth. And uh, I, 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 from there, moved in Chicago, Illinois, and started to uh, organize for the campaign of Free Fred Hampton Jr., who at that time, or well, after the Rodney King Rebellion, which had happened in like 1992, uh, he became, uh, he, he, he got taken down in the aftermath of that because they said that he was a, a rioter in Chicago. Uh, the junior of Fred Hampton, not the father who had been murdered, but now the son. So I jumped on his campaign and became, you know, the president of that campaign and stayed in Chicago from 1992 to 95. The reason why I'm giving you my resume is because um, it was that that I learned the kind of uh, organizing that was making a leaflet, going door to door, trying to influence people uh, based on our common 
uh, community uh, interaction, comings and goings, um, throwing rallies, doing uh, uh, demonstrations, um, all these kind of political action, uh, speak out, soapboxing, wheat pasting, uh, kind of guerrilla, guerrilla organizing in its most guerrilla kind of kind of. Uh, that's that's the way I learned it. I learned it in cold as minus seventy two degrees, Chicago, and what what that became to me was called getting baptized in the fire as a, as a revolutionary. Um, but even in that time, I didn't see the results that I wanted. I wanted to be able to see. I was an impatient revolutionary. I wanted to see the revolution that day um, in 1992 or three or four or five and the freedom. I wanted to break Mumia free at that time in that day. And when it didn't happen, I became kind of impatient. And um, these are lessons that we learn as people who want to make change. But I saw something that was phenomenal and that was the music. And all the while we had been artists, I had been writing rhymes and using it as part of my organizing strategy, but it became even more influential, uh, even more significant to me when I found that going door to door and knocking on people's door and trying to invite them to a rally wasn't very exciting anymore. It wasn't something that people wanted to come to. It wasn't the, my, peer, my peers wasn't running the door to try to get to that. You know, um, even though we were, we, we all were from the same thing, um, you know, we didn't, I didn't, they didn't have the same zeal about it, but what I did see people get excited about was the music. So it was the same lessons that we learned organizing or learning to be organized in the movement that we put into dead prayers. And that's the main reason why we, why we are dead prayers to begin with, is to be able to get out some of the goals and objectives that I couldn't accomplish organizing door to door in Brooklyn and Philadelphia and Kansas City and Oakland that I could do by putting out a CD and having this message be heard, hopefully, uh, by a whole lot of people at one time. And then making the ground more fertile for other organizers to go and say, you heard what they said? Let's go. And so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how I, I intended it to be. And I think that's what I, you want, at least people like us, want our music to be is a component for people who work in the movement to be able to use, to motivate, to build morale, to build a high level of political education, still our uh, our unity of will and action, our principles, our guidance, and to be able to use it to, to help us step stay fast through the you know the BS you know you know so that's uh, that, that I think that's where I see it and um, Boots could probably answer that question too like you might want to say something to that uh, you know similar story I was an organizer first and. Uh, you know, I I didn't think enough people knew about the movement that I was involved in, the organizations um, that I was involved in, and I, I you know, I, one day I saw, uh, one day I was I was in an organization called the International Committee Against Racism, we door to door in a in a not it, what's that project by Hunter Hunter's Point Double Rock, and um, a woman and her two twin sons that were eight years old got beat down by the police. And the whole neighborhood, I wasn't there, I was told this the next day, right? But but the story was very similar. But the whole whole neighborhood came out and ended up uh in, ended up surrounding the police who got scared, started shooting up in the air and scattered everybody. Uh, the whole the whole neighborhood scattered because you know you hear gunshots you don't want to die so you run and then all of a sudden though something made everybody turn back 
when they when they turned back and gathered together, they freed this woman who was beat up and needed to go to the hospital. And and someone a week before had been beat up and not taken to the hospital by the police and died. So they they freed her and her kids and took them to the hospital, turned over three police cars and sent all the police running out of there without their guns. That, that was the end of the night. Nothing like, nothing got in the newspaper. But the next day when we were there doing our regular, you know, fight racism, real vague type organizing, um, we got told this story. And so there were some variances, but everything that I said right now all held true between everybody. The one thing, though, that everybody commented on that made everybody turn back after the police started shooting up was, this was the summer of 1989, and the biggest song on the radio right then was Fight the Power by Public Enemy. And somebody started chanting, fight the power, fight the power, fight the power. And that made everybody understand that this was the thing to do in this moment. Mm. And that's when I knew that, you know, that that, that was that, that was what we needed. We needed anthems, you know. So um, I know that I I know that we got okay. We got one question. We got this. Uh, hopefully, we we can do this last one real quick and then get to the seeing these shots because I want to see them too. I know that there are um, anti-Zionist uh, people in Israel. There are, um, and they're obviously, definitely the ones that were in our group were actually rabbis. So, uh, so you know, they, that does exist. But I didn't see any in Gaza when I was there, or at least not any with their shirts on that says I'm anti-Zionist. <laughs> um, it would have been a perfect time to wear it, you know, because you know we were there. But uh, no, I didn't see it. Um, and I don't know. I don't know the statistic or the evidence that of how many people uh, in Israel are anti-Zionist, but there must be. And I gotta say that just because you're anti-Zionist, you then you have to you have to then also include anti-imperialists you, you, because one implicates the other. Um, you you can't make you can't make an excuse for imperialism and accept Zionism, which is only an excuse. For imperialism, for for what for what's happening, so and that people do that, you know, there are people who run around and say, well, you know, yeah, it's imperialism's fault, but Zionism is cool, you know, so you know, it, it does happen. So I just got to say that, you know. So, um, also, um, wow, what was the first part of what you had to say? You, you talked about anti-imperialists, other resistance groups. Uh, not, I don't know. Um, more resistance groups than Hamas. Um, I think, and because they are elected by the people of Palestine, I do think that the people of Palestine think that Hamas is best suited to be that resistance organization. I just do think that there is a lot left in uh, developing the type of government that can really carry out the job fully. Um, I think it's kind of, you know, I think there is a need for a new kind of resistance, and I do think it's necessary right now because there are people who are 
uh, who are being coerced into being down with Hamas, who I don't think want to be. And I do think there are people who are just forced to endure this government because they maybe have more guns, or maybe they, you know, they look tenacious. Uh, but we're going to need more than that. We're going to need more than tenacity. We're going to need real strategy. We're going to need political maturity. We're going to need true leadership. We're going to need all kind of acceptance and solidarity and other, you know. So, um, and I'm not to say that's not what Hamas has. I just it just means that maybe I didn't see it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. All right. So let's uh, check out these pictures. Okay, let's do it. That um, you took. It's going to be yeah. Um, I took a lot of them. Um, I can't I can't take credit for all of them. We have to see. Um, some of them are just you know pictures, personal pictures, and some of them are. Uh, and some yeah, of them you are, go through and edit yeah, out the and, ones yeah, that people should not yeah, see in public. That's all good. We, we clear. <laughs> Everything can be shown. Um, it's gonna go pretty quickly. This is gonna go pretty quickly. Um, so it, I think the thing only lasts like three minutes long, and I hope people can see. I'm gonna narrate, but I'll narrate quickly. This is um, me in my hotel room. Uh, <laughs> I think I was writing a rap or something like that. I, that's probably we were exhausted. This was the van, the caravans that, that arrived in Palestine, and this is uh, one of the good good people I met. He's from Denver, Colorado. He's actually a former uh, military guy, and he ended up. Uh, on the trip with us. And so this is us. And the blue t-shirts are the t-shirts that we would wear, uh, the Viva Palestina group. Me and Mozzie on the camel, uh, we, we uh, arrived that day and I got directly off the plane and I thought I would have no time to go anywhere to see anything. So we, uh, the driver, uh, in a very adventurous kind of way, said, do you want to go to, go to see the pyramids? And he was like, yeah. And he took us, he took us and uh, he put us on these camels and we tried to go to see the pyramids, but it got dark at night. So I never got a chance to go to the pyramid. But I did get on the back of this camel, which, which, which hurt my ass. Um, this is uh, 5 o'clock in the morning. This is the house of the family that we went to eat in. Uh, the, the guy with the big cheese on his, on his, uh, uh, on his face that, with the hip hop shirt on, he's aiming. And he's from the group PR. And to his left in the green shirt is Nancy. This is Ishmael. Uh, this is Mozzie. He's a rapper. The guy all the way to the right. Uh, yeah, whatever. Yes, uh, right here. Um, his name is Mozzie. He's a hip-hop artist. That's Alejandro. And the one in the blue t-shirt on the other side beside me. His name is also Amen, which is, I guess, a, a popular Arabic name. Um, but he's from New Jersey. And uh, so this is the house. That's his mother in the black. She's still in mourning behind the death of their father, but uh, this is the meal that she made. And in the middle, that's watermelon, and not ham. Um, <laughs> this is uh, Lamont. He's from Brooklyn, and that's Alejandro from New Jersey. And we're on a plane back to Cairo. Sorry, this is my personal one. Um, yeah, we will. Uh, here I am on the back of a camel again. Um, <laughs> This is the hotel that we were in. They brought this camel through just because we were waiting in this hotel for five days. And uh, we, people were, the people were restless. So they brought this camel in to kind of, because the kids, there were young people there, and it was more entertainment. So it didn't really go anywhere, this camel. You just kind of, <laughs> you just get on it, and you take a picture, and you get off. And that's what I did. So, you know. This is uh, one of the people who, uh, I just caught this picture. 
uh, because it, he was, he stood atop the rubble and he was uh, Hamas military who were, was protecting uh, the reservation. Hopefully there's a picture of the reservation that's next, um, but it's just uh, a picture that I think was telling. This is some of the destruction uh, from an F-16 missile. Uh, these things get get um, powered out of helicopters and uh, they do things like this. We go to the next one. Uh, well, this is at the medical center. I'm actually taking a picture. Well, this is more destruction. How about that? Um, another building destroyed. Totally destroyed. As you can see. And this is like from one. Uh, this is just piles of stuff. Um, you can see for yourself. These are government buildings uh, that used to, at one minute were inhabited and now they don't. Have, now there's nothing going on. Uh, the face of a young boy who had been murdered. Many campaigns like this happened. Uh, this is just the edifice of buildings that were not hit directly, but because of, you know, this was a building next to the building that I was in, and I just was able to say, wow, look the, at the almost destruction, even by nearby uh, bombs that was happening. Go ahead. Uh, me and Eamon, and we were, Eamon, we were in front of uh, a uh, tribute to Simone Bolivar. And which we found downtown in Cairo. I thought it was interesting. Uh, anybody who know about the Bolivarian Revolution and know what's going down in in Venezuela and so forth. So that happened. This is uh, I'm taking pictures through a fence at a row of school buses that were charred by bombs. This is uh, this is part of a school called the International the the American School International American School in Gaza. And this is the school. Go 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 forward one more time. Uh, no, this is that's not a school. Stop right here. This is uh, where you see the hole is, is where the missile came in. And then on the other side is where the missile would lead. This is the destruction that you're going to see me in. Uh, it totally destroyed the school. This is an elementary school in Gaza. Um, and this is where, you, uh, where I was able to see some of the most uh, really destruction that I, I, I had ever been able to see. But those are the kind of missile holes that are in the buildings that you know, they don't, that they want people to go. You know, this used to be a place that they said, well, if they start bombing, this is the safe place to hide. And so this is the reason why this place was bombed. You can go ahead. This is the same school. Uh, you can see the, the jagged thing and, and the destruction in the building that happened. Um, I'm actually gonna go inside the school and go up on this third level right here. And it was me and Cynthia McKinney who were um, going through this process together. You can go ahead. Uh, yeah, this is like a hallway at standing up in the school that's been Swiss cheesed up by destruction. Um, if you can just imagine, this is where the kids were learning. This is uh, through three classrooms, uh, how the missile plowed through this, this, this room, this, this school. Um, so we're seeing through into three classrooms. Palestinian youth, you know, the, the hats, the green hats, represent Hamas. They represent the government. This is uh, the refugee camps. This is what you live in when you when your house, when your building is destroyed. <clears throat> and uh, so, then this is what the guy with the gun who was standing on the top of the rocks. This is what he was guarding. Is this? 
uh, this is the American International School in Ghana. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was a place where when we pulled up outside of it, uh, Cynthia McKinney really was moved by it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I ended up going and running up in here close to in there and getting her a book. It was a school book she saw on the top of the rubble and it was a lesson that some young elementary school kid was writing. She actually travels around with the book now and uses it, but it's from this particular site. Um, they actually changed the name of it now. It's called the Gaza School. It's not called the American School, International School in Gaza. That's uh, myself and Cynthia McKinney standing in front of her. This is speaking at the conclusion, concluding ceremony um, where the Prime Minister would speak. This is the hotel that we were in. Uh, and uh, this is the place where myself and Mazi and the brothers from the group PR, this is where we would perform on the way out um, leaving. But uh, this is also the place where they told the group about the kind of um, depleted uranium they were using against the people. And uh, this was, like I said, in the 24-hour period, this was toward the end when we had to leave. Um, like I said, we came in about 9 that night. This would be around 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock that day, and we needed to basically start going toward the border. So the people here were, were getting ready to get together and leave. This is Mazi, uh, Soul Purpose. I'm rapping, and this is uh, some of the other people. This is the last, then the last, and this is Cynthia McKinney. So, my statue, my Cairo statue. <laughs> I, was, I was exhausted. I don't even know, I don't even know why that's <laughs> These are some of the brothers uh, on the trip. Uh, of course, there was African solidarity, and this is the flag that we carried, and that we were, uh, you know, the, the shirts um, are the Viva Palestina shirts that people wore. And uh, but these are the brothers from the trip. So many of us, I can't even remember all of our names. Waving the flag. This is actually in the immigration office. This is Brother Lamont from Brooklyn. And once again, that damn camel. <laughs> And uh, this is the desert on the way from uh, from Cairo to Rafa. This is generally what the ten hours of it look like, and uh, that's it. So, all right. So, thank you again for sharing your time and uh, everything with me. Um, this the ghetto that got the tour. Uh, is successful because it's able to build solidarity with people like you. Um, I wouldn't care if it, there were only one of you here, but there are many of you here, and you can go and tell 10 more people. So I think it helps to, for us to be able to build for action that we're going to take in the future. I think we need to be firm, steadfast, and ahead of the game. Uh, we can't wait and let them determine what's cool and what's not cool for us to, for us to be doing at this time. Uh, you know, and put out in, in, in public opinion and, and make us reactionary. Now is the time not to be reactionary. Now is the time to be revolutionary, not reactionary. So let's uh, let's move it forward. Thank you, Boots, man. I'm looking forward to that new Street Sweeper. Are you doing a new Street Sweeper? Is it a, he got an album out. I hope y'all know it's from the Street Sweeper Social Club. And uh, 
Yeah. Him and Tom Murillo got together from Rage Against the Machine. Do y'all know about this album? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, good. I'm glad y'all ain't late to the game. All right. Well, thank you. I want to uh, say thanks to M1, to JR, to Barrios Unidos, to the Brown Berets, to uh, everyone who helped put this together. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you guys are doing this because it was interesting to me. I was actually not just thinking of my next question. <laughs> uh, thank you to all you for coming here. Thank you to the DJ. Yeah. Power to the people. Power to the people. When I say what's the call, you say free them all. What's the call? 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 Free them all. Free them all. Love y'all.